Good morning. Good morning. Oh, that was even better. That was even better. My name is Enos Raglan, and I am one of the deputy mayors for the city of Madison and my areas of uh, administration and finance. And I am pleased to be here to emcee this part of the program for our uh, neighborhoods roundtable. And uh, I saw the article. Well, first, did anyone else manage to fill up their car before gas prices went up? Just me? No. It's, it's just those, those minor victories that I have, you know. It's like on a day-to-day -day basis, it was 219, now it's 223, and I managed to fill up before that. So I'm feeling good today. So anyway, I digress. So um, any, first thing we would like you to do is to stand or turn around and meet someone who you don't know. Turn around. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There are a couple things I want to highlight for you at the conference. One, there are over 350 people that are registered for this uh, Neighborhoods Roundtable, and that is the largest ever. Thank you for being here. Yes. yes, I applaud you. Getting up on a Saturday morning, it's rainy, it's cloudy, and and uh, you're here. And that means that you care about your neighborhood, you care about your city. And neighborhoods are the fabric of every city. And strong neighborhoods make a strong city. So we appreciate you being here, and thank you for being here this morning. So there are a, a few things I want to point out. There is a spontaneous writing booth out, if you haven't seen that, where you can go up and you can help write a poem, and that poem can be in English or Spanish. So we'd like you to take advantage of that. That's another networking opportunity that you have here. There's another one uh, for the one who finds me. There are little bouquets or items around that you may see that look out of place, and so it's an opportunity to, to network with someone or to, to reach out to someone, uh, and it's probably a bit more detailed than that than I'm giving you, but uh, please feel free to, to check that out. Again, we have a very tight day, a very tight schedule. There will be breaks. Feel free, feel free to take a break when you uh, so desire. Uh, we will try to have refreshments and uh, available for you as long as possible. I uh, believe we budgeted for 150 people, and we have 350, so <laughs> it, that's a good problem to have. But, but bear with us, and, and, and we appreciate your, your uh, patience. Uh, as you may already know, the bathrooms are on either end of the building, um, so um, you may have to start a little early to get there. For some of us, that's what I have to do to <laughs> get there in time. And also we want to make sure that you uh, turn off your cell phones or put them on stun so that uh, you do not interrupt or disturb anyone else uh, either now or, or in the workshops. Um, I, I saw an article the other day about the Neighborhoods Roundtable, and it talked about the first Neighborhoods Conference. And we have a Neighborhoods Conference on alternate years. 
and it talked about 1996 when the, uh, the First Neighborhoods Conference was developed, and I was happy to see that, well, it didn't mention me, but I knew that I was involved as, long, as well as Jill Stroik, who is over whispering to the mayor right now, uh, when the mayor asked us to pull together the First Neighborhoods Conference in 1996, and I am pleased to have been a part of that, working with Jewel and other members of the planning department staff to pull that off, and it's for over 20 years now that we have been doing this. And it's a great thing for our city, it's a great thing for you, because you're here to learn something to help improve your neighborhood, uh, on so many different levels. With that, I would like to bring up Mayor Paul Soglin, who will give you the welcoming and opening speech. Please join me in welcoming Mayor Soglin. Thank you, Enos, and I want to thank, uh, I want to thank the deputy mayors, uh, Tarek, plan department staff, for the work that they've put in throughout the last year uh, getting us ready for this conference. Um, first thing I'd like to do is introduce some of the city council members who are here. Um, I see Alderman Clear, Balda, uh, Revere was back there. There's Mike, uh, Rommel, Liddell Zellers, the rest, other council members. Can you uh, stand, raise your hand so I can see you? Um, so did I, I guess I got them all? Shout if I didn't get you. Okay. Um, also, could those on the ends just squeeze in a little? We've got some late arrivals, and uh, they, they can't uh, get seats. So... Uh, where do we start? Uh, Enos mentioned that in 1996 we held the first of these conferences, and they've been a fixture uh, in the city ever since. But the topics have changed as our nation has changed and as our neighborhoods become more responsive in regards to the challenges of our communities. For better or worse, I'd like to share with you the fact that many of our challenges are universal throughout the United States. They're not just Madison's challenge. I want to share with you some of the things going on as we look at the sessions that we'll hold uh, this, this morning. The, the first issue uh, or topical uh, matter is violence, trauma, reliance, and actions. A number of years ago, the mayors of New Orleans and Philadelphia, Mayor Nutter in Philadelphia and Mayor Landrieu in, in New Orleans, who's been on the news quite a bit in the last year, first uh, because of his very brave uh, and bold stance following the discussions in Charleston over the Confederate flag, uh, started taking down Confederate statues in, in New Orleans. Most recently, like yesterday, uh, we saw him on the news uh, as he's preparing his city for uh, another hurricane. But in any case, those two mayors organized us into a group called Cities United, specifically addressing the topic of violence among young African-American men 
and the toll that they were taking on one another. We had our most recent meeting last month in, in or actually it was late August, in Minneapolis. And the mayors who were there gathered, and as we shared information about our communities, as we shared information about our communities, we found one very, very common challenge, which is despite the long-range initiatives, the ones that will bear fruit 5, 10, 20 years out, the early childhood development initiatives, the housing initiatives, the job training initiatives, the changes that are taking place in our public schools. Despite those initiatives which will have benefits to our communities in the long run, we were finding in each of our cities that there were groups of young men to whom these initiatives were not relevant. They were disengaged from their neighborhoods and their communities in any positive manner. They didn't feel that any of this was relevant to them. And those of us uh, who had gone down a slightly different path were finding that peer group developments and support was starting to make a bit of a difference. That's one of the things that you'll hear about in the uh, first of, of, of the program seminars at 1015. And I want to say that this is an area that is new. We are feeling our way. We are not perfect. But we are going to make progress and we are going to commit ourselves to an initiative which is based on working with young men through men who have been there before. And I just want to thank those who are involved in developing that initiative. They'll be participating in that forum for the work they've done this last year, year and a half. Uh, the, the topic of housing trends. After the recession, Madison, like so many other cities, saw an end to new construction, whether we're talking single-family homes, apartments, and it really didn't mean, uh, it didn't matter what income level we were addressing. The point was we stopped building housing. So that from that period from 2007, 2008, to about 2011, we found ourselves in a situation where we had among the 100 metro largest metropolitan areas in the United States, we had the lowest vacancy rate at about 2.5%. We would like that vacancy rate to be closer to 5%. 5% is considered to be a balanced market between needs and availability. So we started an initiative through the development of some staff research, which you'll be seeing in that seminar with, with Matt Walker, to not only build more housing, but to build more housing over the next decade for everyone.
Well, you'll find out, and I don't want to take away from what Matt will be discussing, that if we build a thousand new units a year, all we're going to do is break even. When I first entered the mayor's office, our population was 170,000. It's now over 250,000. We're going to be looking at 280,000 within the lifetime of most people in this room. Housing is a challenge. And that's why we've got a staff group that's working under the direction of a really sloppy title, which is, we don't want to be another San Francisco. What's meant by that? is we want to create and build more housing for every income, for every family need, in such abundance that we do not have housing as an obstruction to having healthy, successful families. The The seminar, the discussion, the workshop on racial equity tools and open data. Madison is one of the leading cities in the United States on open data. The important thing is knowing what to look for and knowing how to measure it. Now, unfortunately, one of the best sources for data occurs every decade. And that's the census. Now, the Census Bureau does something each year called the American Community Survey. But because there's some members in the Congress of the United States that don't believe information is important, they are actually cutting back on the work that's done by the Census Bureau in getting us accurate data. What that means is that in too many areas we're working with data that at this point is almost seven years old. And so we don't have regular markers every year to see how we're doing. And so one of the things we're trying to do as a city is to figure out how we can collect the data, important data, and see what the trends are. What is the direction, the trajectory of the city? There's a report that the Madison Police Department circulates to uh, my office and the council each morning. And while we don't statistically add up each aspect of it, there are some trends that if you read these reports of the most significant activities each night, which you see in the morning uh, over a period of days and weeks and months, is some very disturbing trends. One of them has to deal with drug overdoses. Interestingly enough, that is a phenomenon that more times than not involves whites, principally white males. Another one of the trends that we see is responses on domestic violence. And those, more likely than not, involve African-American males. And I don't know 
for a fact that that's representative of the challenge. Perhaps violence, domestic violence among, among white men is not as reported as frequently to the police department, and perhaps overdoses uh, among uh, uh, African-American men are not reported. But the point is this. We estimate that over one-third of our police and fire department budgets are spent on responding to incidents that involve mental illness and substance abuse. This is an issue that was barely discussed in our society a couple of decades ago. In the cuts that were considered in health coverage by the Congress this last month, many of those cuts were focused on dealing with the challenges of mental health. We have got to recognize that this is such a serious problem in our community and around the nation. It's a secret that cannot be kept in the closet. And whether it is to lead to tragic overdoses and deaths, whether it's to lead to, to domestic violence, it is our responsibility to intervene and to do something about it. Uh, I've pretty well extended at my time, and there won't be comments on the other subjects, but one of the things we've tried to do, as we've done in past years, is leave the end of the session rather open. So as we approach noon and get through the noon hour, there'll be opportunities for all of you to converse among one another and, and to share uh, your experiences and your vision uh, for the future of Madison. So thank you very much for being here, and thank you for signing. And uh, let's get on with the next segment. Thank you, Mayor Soglin. Uh, the next portion of our, our, on our agenda is a conversation with the mayor, Natalie Erdman, who is the uh, head of our planning and development department. There's a few more acronym. It's a longer acronym than that, but you get the gist. Uh, so, but she has a lot of responsibility for the city. We have had this uh, in uh, previous uh, neighborhood uh, conferences and roundtables, and it's been very well received and is one of the, the activities that people appreciate a lot. So I'm not quite sure. I, th I see there are microphones uh, in different places on both sides of the room where I think you can go up and ask your question. Um, Don't all rush to the mic at once.
Try the on button. <laughs> Does that, did that, yeah, that did it. Okay. So, first, doing this was not my idea. Um, but the staff who's been working on this for years says um, one of the comments and feedbacks we've had in past years is people want to have the ability to directly ask questions to the mayor. So, here we are. Now, the question had to do with mental health cuts. Um, the city budget for this coming year has no cuts in any of the provision, providings, providings, provisions that we make in terms of funding mental health. Mental health is not an area that the city traditionally or legally supports. However, um, it is an area where we support nonprofit organizations and we will continue to support them in, in regards to uh, the, work, the work that they're doing. Cuts have been made at the state level, and not the least of which um, is a facility here in the Madison area where people undergoing a mental health crisis uh, used to be uh, used to be taken to, and now because it was closed, they have to be taken to Winnebago. The result is very expensive costs to the city and uh, to the family impacted because of the distance. The bigger concern with, with mental health is the funding through the Affordable Care Act that comes into the state of Wisconsin, and there the governor and the state legislature plays a major role in terms of allocating those funds and making commitments. Now, let's, let's be very blunt, and I'm not the first one to say it. Since the opioid crisis has hit, principally white communities, suddenly there is this national and state interest in dealing with certain mental health issues as it relates to substance abuse. It's the exact opposite in terms of what we saw in the 1990s in regards to crack cocaine. And on the one hand, I think it's good news that finally we're seeing state leaders responding to the crisis regarding drugs and mental health. On the other hand, we've got to be very aware of the racial bias that we see in these decisions. Now, I was in a meeting in August or July with a senator from West Virginia, and I made that point that one-third of our police and fire department budgets are focused on responding to these kinds of challenges, where as kids we grew up and we thought about the fire the ambulance going to an auto accident or to deal with someone who had a heart attack. Now, 
they're going to deal with the injuries of somebody in a domestic abuse matter or a drug overdose. So he said to me, how did you do it? In West Virginia, it's 70 percent. Now, the reason he knows that is he used to be the governor of West Virginia. But the media thought that I had was that much of this is a result of economic stress. That dealing with the crisis day to day of how do I feed my family? How do I take care of my kids? How do I take care of my loved ones? Leaves people with self-medication as part of the solution to the problem. And so when we talk about treating mental health, we not only have to have the therapy, the work of physicians and health care providers, but I believe that if we have a fair and just economy, we will go a long ways towards fixing some of these problems. So the question is, what are we doing in regards to creating more affordable housing? Well, one of our greatest successes, and, and Natalie can discuss this in more detail, is how we've changed our approach in working with WIDA in using tax credits, where it used to be a system driven by developers without good regard to location and services. And now we've got a different program on that. Now, I'll, I'll let Natalie uh, address that, and then I'll come back and, 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 and go into some more detail. So the city's program to increase the availability of affordable housing uh, really started with a research of data and a research of programs that are available um, to make long-term affordable housing um, available and, and how do you create that? Through that research, uh, the council and the mayor uh, were uh, uh, very aggressive in terms of funding um, four and a half million dollars a year to go towards supporting affordable housing development. And then from there, we created a list of priorities to make sure that that housing would get created in locations where there was access to transportation, access to jobs, access to food so that the housing would be in a good location. So we don't want our affordable housing to be on a green field where there's not a strong community and not a strong set of supports. We want that affordable housing to be in the places that um, everybody wants to live, where there's good access to the things that households need to be, to, to be successful. Uh, that program started a couple of years ago, and one of the parts of that program um, that was instrumental was looking at how we aligned our resources with other resources uh, to make that affordable housing happen. And so the mayor mentioned uh, that the Wisconsin Housing and Economic Development Authority provides tax credits, developers access those tax credits, and by the city participating with those developers and giving them funding, allocating funding to them, they became more competitive in our state. And so our community has now participated at a higher level in terms of getting access to that funding that's available from the state to create affordable housing. 
um, we're uh, successful in creating about 200 housing units a year that's straight up affordable housing, long-term affordability for people um, on the lower end of our spectrum. Um, another 50 units is being created each year uh, to house people who have experienced homelessness, and that housing generally has services associated with it. That's not nearly enough. Um, our, what we know is there's about 50,000 renter households in the city of Madison. Half of those renter households are housing costs burdened, which means they pay more than 30% of their income in housing costs. If we remove students because they really sway our data here, um, we probably have 15,000 15, households in our community um, that are severely housing costs burdened. They're paying more than 50% of their income um, in housing costs. And so really that what we're doing is uh, is adding units, but what we really need to do is look at the economy and figure out how to move those lower income households up into a better earning wage. And so I think as we talk about affordable housing, we also have to talk about the job ladder so that people coming out of high school um, or with a GED can get that 15 to $20 an hour living wage job um, and, and with benefits because that's the only way that we're going to ever really uh, solve this problem of, of affordability and housing. And because I'm not good at this, can you tell us what are some of the projects that we've either finished or are under construction now? Yeah, so um, we have, um, it, you know, to, to create new uh, apartments takes two to three years. You have to apply for the tax credits, get funding from the city, and then you have to build it. And so this started, I think, about three years ago, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Tennyson Ridge on the north side it just opened um, at, at the Union Corners. Gorman is opening a, a development called the Carbon. Um, down on the southwest side on... Um, Maple, in Maple Grove area. Um, there's a development that opened there earlier this spring. I think there's one other that I'm missing. So we're, uh, and, and most importantly, Rethke, which is 60 units for uh, single people who are experiencing homelessness with heavy supportive services that opened about a year ago. Um, so that we're beginning to see really the fruits of the labor um, and, and we'll continue to see about 200 units a year as we go each year. So that's one of the initiatives where we partnered with the state. But then the question is, what else can we do? And that'll be the subject of uh, the presentation on housing, um, which, will, which will be held at, at 1015, where the staff is now working on strategies, trying to figure out what we can do to lower costs. Um, and there's certain areas where we won't make concessions and lowering costs, for example, uh, we're not going to cut back requirements on green space, open space, or contributions for parklands. But we're trying to see, are there things we are doing as a city that adds unnecessarily to the cost of the housing, which then has a long-term adverse effect on the tenants? And that will be subject to that workshop. Thank you, Mayor. My name is John Pinto. I'm the president of the Walnut Grove uh, Homes Neighborhood Association. I've got two questions, one for you, Mayor, and one for Natalie Erdman. And the first question is, in talking to people all across the, the city, I found one of the big questions in people's minds is safety. And our crime statistics seem to be going up and up and up. And uh, 
and the police officers seem to be going down and down and down. So my question to you, Mayor, is are we going to get enough police officers to keep us safe? Because that's been statistically and uh, by all the data is that the, the biggest thing that really decreases crime is more police officers on the street. And to Natalie Erdman, I have a question is, are you trying to attract more people to come downtown, to live downtown and make it more a vibrant place? Thank you. Thank you. On the, on the, on the question of, of uh, crime data, actually we're participating in a national trend of seeing violent crime decline. What we've got is one specific area uh, where we've, we've had a challenge, and that is related to the shots fired, which in some instances have tragically resulted in, in homicides. And in those instances, uh, we believe that there's a couple of strategies, because more likely than not, those kinds of violent incidents are not going to take place in the presence of a police officer. Now, parenthetically, let me say that next year's budget does have an increase uh, so that by the end of 2018, we will have 15 more police officers, uh, assuming our successful uh, application for this COPS grant. But in terms, again, of the young people who are participating in this particular level of violence, the challenge is reaching them and we believe that, in part, it's going to be done by peers, by older men who, in effect, have walked in their shoes, working with them and redirecting their activities. The other area of concern I've got, speaking of downtown, uh, has to do with the corner of University and Francis Street, where on Thursday and Friday nights we have large crowds gathering and alcohol-fueled and, and, and a potentially uh, very dangerous situation. We actually made some changes last night in how that area is patrolled. The last night's not a good indicator because the weather had turned and it was rainy. Uh, but there's specific what we're referring to as hot spots where we want to focus. And what's, what's important is if we have to put more officers, say, on a Friday, Saturday night at University and Francis Street, then the rest of the city is depleted in terms of coverage. So the strategy, in part, is some, some more officers, but we've really got to get to the root cause of why these young men um, are, are, are engaged in such violent activity. So as to... Um uh, encouraging people to live downtown or creating a vibrant downtown. Our community has focused on our downtown for many years, and I think we've been successful through the private um, act activities, private activities as well as through public activities, of creating a really vibrant place where people can live, work, and play. Uh, and so we've seen a natural desire of our growing um, baby boomer population as well as this growing millennial population. Their desire to live in an active place, in a place where they have a lot of good experiences, uh, and, and the downtown has been that. And we all know that it's a great downtown because we have these great resources of the lakes, 
Um, we have a lot of interesting things to do. We now have good arts and good food, and that makes people want to live here. Um, I think what we really need to think about is how we begin moving that idea of these thriving locations, not just in the downtown, but out to all of our neighborhoods. Because what that shows is that, you know, again, our population, we're getting older and younger in Madison. We're getting a big push of people who are 65 and older, and we got this big growing group of people who are 25 to 35, and they like the same things. They like to be in an active, vibrant place. They like to have access to arts and entertainment, um, easy access to their job. They don't want to be in their car too often. And so it's very expensive to choose to be a liver, to, to, to choose to live downtown. And so we really need to look at, as we go to each neighborhood, um, outside of the downtown, how do we create that same vibe, that same feeling that will attract our millennials and our empty nesters and provide them with the housing type that they're really looking for um, to create more than just a downtown presence. By the way, I just want to apologize. Do you think I'm fooling around with my phone here? Uh, I followed directions and I shut off the ringer, and now I've managed to completely shut it down so I can't even be reached in an emergency and I can't figure out how to fix it. <laughs> so that's, that's why I'm monkeying with the phone. My apologies. Uh, yes? Uh, this question's for Natalie. I'm wondering if any of the projects, the new projects you mentioned, are rent controlled or if there's a move toward any rent controlled housing and if not, why not? So the new Natalie, project, would you repeat the question? So for the, the, the question is, were any of the new projects that I mentioned rent controlled, and is there a move towards rent control, and if not, why not? Um, those, those affordable housing tax credits that are being used require the owner for at least 30 years to income and rent restrict. So they, their rents are required to be affordable to people at certain income levels, at those lower income levels. And the people who live there have to make less than those income levels. So there is a rent restriction that comes attached to um, the, the funding that's the, those WIDA tax credits. So, yes, they're long-term affordable, and the people who live in those units have to need that affordable housing. We don't do here rent control that if you've heard about New York or um, some other big cities, we don't have that type of rent control. But these are long-term affordable units for people who need them. Let me just re repeat that answer, that under Wisconsin law and because of decisions of the Supreme Court, we cannot have rent control uh, in, in Wisconsin. But at the same time, for those landlords who choose to participate in these federal programs to get the benefit of the tax credits and that investment, they have to agree to limit how they raise their rents during that 30-year period. Yes. Okay. We have someone at the mic back here. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, well, okay I'll, I'll go ahead. Uh, my name is Wilder Dietzen with the Worthington Park Neighborhood Association. My question is about uh, the just and fair economy you were talking about earlier, and I'm just wondering what the city's plan is for long-term and short-term development of work uh, for people with less education that's uh, both meaningful and pays a living wage. Thank you. A couple of things. Um, First off, we are one of these states, we may unfortunately be the leading state where the state legislature has preempted municipalities in all sorts of economic areas. There's a series of states where this is happening. Uh, Texas is another example, North Carolina. 
and unfortunately Wisconsin's legislature has <laughs> been the leader. So that in terms of minimum wage, in terms of certain kinds of worker benefits, we cannot do those things and regulate them as a municipality. So what we are doing is where we can is to lead by example. So we're now entering the second year of a four-year program to get the minimum salary for a city employee to $15 an hour, hoping to raise the bar and, by example, uh, set that standard for the rest of the community. Uh, we have not backed off, despite what happened with Act 10, on uh, retirement benefits for public employees, though we are, again, controlled by the state to a certain extent on, on what we can do with health insurance. Now, the bigger challenge you identified is what we refer to as the job skills mismatch, that in terms of the job skills of those folks who are not making a minimum of 15 to $20 an hour and what there is in the workforce of the available jobs, we've got this enormous mismatch. We are under contract with the Urban League, and we're working with several other organizations right now to correct that, to get the job skills out there that uh, are going to provide a, a, a better relationship between what's available for employment and the job skills people have. Um, one of the things that we've been working on this last couple of months, which I'm very excited about, uh, is the exact sciences decision, which hopefully will be finalized to locate in Madison at the old Rayovac site uh, off of the, the Beltline and Schrader Road. The reason this is important to us, the reason this is important to us is the following. First, it's within walking distance of hundreds, if not thousands, of households where there is underemployment. Secondly, the company has guaranteed that the minimum starting wage will be $15 an hour. There will be health insurance and retirement for all employees. And... And they are working again with the Urban League and other organizations to ensure that that immediate community around them is going to have access to those jobs. This might be one of the most exciting things we've done. In terms of the city TIF to support this, I want to put it in perspective. The cost comes to $8,000 per job. Foxconn is $400,000 per job. What? So see the proportion, 8400000 <laughs> dollars So we think that this is a great investment. And don't forget that $8,000 really, per job, we believe, will be recaptured in the increased property taxes that come from the future investment. So we may end up actually net paying nothing over the next uh, 15 years or so. Uh, but I, I just 
hope that this, again, is not only important for this specific company and the jobs they're creating, but, again, the standard it will set for businesses in Madison. I just would like to add one more thing, which is the mayor and the council have also supported a number of programs around entrepreneurship, um, whether it's the Market Ready program for the public market where we're supporting um, uh, individuals and in, in small businesses and growing their business and helping them come to market, or whether it's a cooperative program where we're supporting organizations to become a cooperative type of ownership where everybody in the company has a piece of the ownership and a control or whether it's the, um, the new high-tech fund where we are supporting uh, the growth of women and minorities in the high-tech businesses. All of those are also meant to give people a pathway that's not necessarily traditional, but a pathway to increasing their ability to participate in our economy. Uh, how much time do we have left since my phone is about seven minutes? All right. I want to actually take this a step further, if you don't mind, since, since we're on this. Um, Two years ago, um, going back to Cities United, uh, we had about a dozen of us, including a half a dozen young African-American men, go down to Birmingham, Alabama for this meeting. And we finished at about 5 o'clock the first night with all the formal engagement, and the young men uh, asked if they could just take off and go explore Birmingham, which they did. So the next morning, we're gathered at breakfast, and we were all sitting around talking and asked them, you know, what they had seen the night before. And what they said that morning and what they said upon their return was probably the most important thing that they learned in Birmingham was that there were all these businesses that they went to that were retails as they walked the streets of Birmingham that were owned and operated by African-Americans besides barbershops and beauty salons. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They didn't know black people owned and ran their own businesses. Now, it's estimated by the Kaufman Foundation that over one-third, 37% of all new businesses created in the U.S., are created by people who were not born in this country. They were created by, by immigrants. If you're white and you're middle class, college is a great opportunity to economic success and economic independence as adults and raising a family. For families of color, for families that are low income, entrepreneurship and owning a business is a, a, a very viable alternative if the family does not have the resources for college education for young people. And the same thing is true of immigrants. This is one area uh, where, where Madison has certainly lacked over the years. We don't even have the number of African-American grocery stores that we did 50 years ago though the number of Asian grocery stores has significantly increased. Mm -hmm. And so these, this effort focused on entrepreneurship and, and, and the ability to own and create one's own business is, is a major part of our economic development initiatives. 
Let me just say, I've been given five more minutes, so we have um, ten minutes, and we have like about four people in the queue over here. So if you can make your questions succinct and the answers succinct, then we'll get through everyone. <laughs> okay, thanks. Uh, yeah, I'd have to uh, dispute whether or not college is automatically an economic guarantee of economic su- success, irrespective of what uh, racial or ethnic grouping you're in. But my actual question is, I guess, primarily for Natalie. It's about uh, public housing. Uh, my experience is now maybe six years old, but uh, I was living in public housing for a time, and I was appalled by the very marginal quality of the managerial staff at certain of the uh, public housing campuses. Um, they did not appear to be terribly concerned about providing service to the residents. They tended to be very bureaucratic and um, rude, essentially. I'm wondering what, if anything, has been done since the time that I was in public housing to ensure a better quality of managerial staff at the different sites? Thank you. Um, so I also have the benefit or the, uh, the honor of being the executive director of the Community Development Authority, which runs our public housing um, portfolio. And um, I understand people have different experiences, but my experiences with our staff has been the opposite of that. Our public housing is run through a HUD program where HUD provides us with funding uh, to allow people to live in housing and pay 30% of their income in rent. And HUD is very bureaucratic. So there's a lot of bureaucracy that comes with that funding, which is critical to keeping about 900 units of housing um, affordable to very low-income people. Um, The staff, I think, has done a lot of work in terms of thinking about how we do more than just provide housing, um, how we also provide supportive services to help people stay stable in their housing, or how we could help people improve their circumstance so they can move up and out of housing. I do see a number of people in the audience that I've met through my days at the CDA, um, and we have a resident advisory board. Uh, we respect and value the voice of our residents, and I, can, I expect us all to continue to use that information that we get from our residents to improve the quality of housing that we can offer. Good morning. I'm Regina Ryan, former Dane County Supervisor, and now I'm an assistant property manager at Ridgecrest on Northport, uh, really stressful. And I can agree with some of what he just said. But my question to you, Mayor Soglin, is we talk about the gaping wounds that we have in our community when it comes to black males. And we have to look at the females because they birthed the males, the family. Okay. If you had three things and the money to do the three things, and we had a triage team because we need one, what can we do right now? Because it's not going to get any better. We can sit here all day and talk about it. If you had the money, you had the resources, you had the bodies, the community bodies, the city staff, three things you could do right now to help the, that, that population because it's... The first one would be uh, early childhood development, starting with uh, expanding the program that we have in the grant from the Renabaum Foundation on the uh, section of the northeast side, which deals with everything from uh, conception, pregnancy, healthy healthy nutrition, and all that for mom during the course of of pregnancy, and then 
uh, from, from the uh, moment of delivery, uh, making sure that mother, child, family uh, have, have everything they need uh, in preparing that child for when they're in fourth and fifth grade in, in regards to um, uh, entry into the school system. So the first thing would be early childhood development, which is not just the baby, but it's the family and everything that goes with it. That's the first thing I'd do. Uh, the second thing I'd do is simply find out how much money it would cost and spend it to address the challenges of young men and women, regardless of race, in their, say, 15th or 16th year through their early 30s in terms of, of everything from job preparation uh, to, to lifestyle. Um, when you're 23 years old, you're probably uh, old enough not to be living in your mother's home. Um, and, I, and I want to frame it this way. Take the kid who's college bound. That kid is with a group of peers through high school and then moving on to college who all have the same objective and the same goals. Once in college, there's resident advisors in the dormitories, there are deans, there are all these folks, as well as classmates, with alignment towards success. And still, one-third of those kids drop out. Now you take an 18 or a 20-year-old who... Uh, is, is struggling, uh, perhaps has not finished high school, does not have a GED, or has marginally gotten through high school and has the challenge of going, say, to a class at MATC Junior College. Look at the environment that they're in. Are they in an environment where, again, you have alignment, where everybody in the neighborhood, everybody they live with is trying to get to that same goal? Because there's a lot of distractions, there's a lot of other things pulling at them, as well as the challenges of not being prepared. And so the second pot of money, to answer your question, would go into everything from housing to tutoring to transportation needs for, for that, that young group. With the third pot of money, I'd look at our five areas for every household in the city. Housing, transportation, health, particularly mental health and nutrition, quality child care, which we might have covered with the first one, and, um, uh, and employment. And just make sure that those five have been addressed. There was a young lady over here. Did you still have a question? Oh, right there. repeat that question? I'm not sure I'm, I'm, I know the question. So, uh, what are you doing to uh, support school, uh, Okay. 
So the question is, what are we doing to support the Madison uh, School Community Rec Program? Well, there's a number of things where we're partnering. First of all, the school district and the city have collaborated on something called, what's that name of our after school? Most. 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 M-O-S-T. Madison Out of School Time. So 70%, I don't remember, 70, 80% of a child's waking hours is not in school. And so one of the things that we're focused on is what is a child doing when they're not in the classroom? And that's children of all ages, particularly teenagers. Uh, oh, and that's the other thing. Regina? Regina? Yes. A teen program center. Yeah. A teen program center. That, that has got to be somewhere in, in, in that list. Um, so anyway, whether it's food programs or it's expanding our neighborhood center activities, that, that's, that's where our focus is. And that's probably been one of the greatest frustrations I've had over the last uh, six, seven years, is that when we get done with all of our other capital costs, uh, we don't have enough funding uh, to expand our neighborhood center programming. Neighborhood centers have been Madison's off, or orphans for, for decades. Um, we do not have a parks and recreation department. We have a parks department. And one of the questions I'm always asking is, you know, what would it take to have a full recreation department? And again, that failure is reflected in the fact that when the school district closed the loft a number of years ago, we have no place for teens in this city. Not even an internet cafe for them to just hang out. And hanging out is something that teens do very well. <laughs> All right, this will be the last two questions. Coach, where's the lady with the mic? Well, Coach, no. go ahead. Coach, go ahead. Um, good morning. Um, two questions. My first question is how do we continue creating, driving the point home and creating a narrative that if we don't address the trauma and the apathy that's foundational in what young people go through each and every day, how do we communicate to people that programming, arresting, and nothing else will work until we start figuring out ways to address the trauma and the apathy? My second question is how do we um, communicate to the city at large that while we honor and respect the work of the, um, a lot of the big machines in terms of helping the youth in this community, how do we convey the message that there's a lot of um, smaller grassroots organizations that are working just as hard and want to make an impact just as much? Well, Coach, two, two things. First on the question, I think you, you sort of said the magic word, which is trauma. If, if, if there were one thing that we could fix that would have the greatest and most profound impact on a better community forever, it would be the elimination of trauma. And that trauma shows up in so many different ways. It shows up not just in physical uh, trauma in terms of whether it's domestic abuse or it's bullying at school, but it also shows up in terms of uh, uh, mental health. And dealing with that mental health challenge is, is, is and, and, and the consequences of physical abuse is just a major challenge for all of us. And that's one of the reasons why uh, violence, trauma, 
Resilience in Actions is the title of one of our workshops today to expand that discussion throughout the city. The second thing that we're learning um, Wording this properly is always a challenge. Um, the second thing that we're learning is that in terms of communicating our initiatives, our solutions, our alternatives, we have to be very careful as to who is the messenger. And as was said to me, I'll just, I'll just quote somebody from a week ago. Um, the individual was not at all hesitant about saying, about talking about his background. He was raised here in Madison on the south side uh, or near Penn Park. Um, I didn't know his story, but I did know his parents. Um, and the synopsis of his life is that basically by the time he was in his early 20s, he was facing a combined 125 years in prison. Uh, he ended up, because of good behavior and the work of others, uh, serving eight years. At the end of the eight years, he came out of prison and said, I am going to spend as much time in edu getting educated as I did in prison. So... There's a Ph.D. after his name today. He's got a doctorate degree. Um, but in talking about that period in his life where he transitioned, I mean, keep in mind what you would think of him. As an 18, 19-year-old, he's performed several armed robberies. He's facing over 100 years in prison. The guy has got his doctorate degree. He's an expert in violence. Um, but he won't come back to Madison because of our winters. <laughs> okay. But the point, the point that he made was that a white woman giving him advice at that critical juncture didn't work. It was a black man that he could relate to that was significant in changing his life. And so as we fund our programs and we work in transitioning estranged young people, we're going to have to look at who we are supporting in making that work. And to be very blunt about it, some of those black men we're going to be funding do not have pristine records. And we're going to have to get used to that. And that, I think, is the second part of the answer. Okay. Thank, you. Thank you, sir. And I would like to add um, two things. Some of those organizations must be the ones that you don't normally think of when you wake up in the morning. And let's not forget Puerto Rico. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Last question. Well, and these people have been lined up for a minute, so. Well, first of all, I want to thank you. Uh, and uh, just as a point of interest, 
there are some very creative and interesting projects being done in Milwaukee with the Vanguard Group and other developers around mixed income housing that is achieving quite a bit of success uh, that I hope we'll be able to look at and establish in some form here in Madison. I'm one of those persons that Mayor Sagan just talked about who does not have that pristine record. Uh, but I am here, and my question is one about access, uh, particularly in terms of the peer support that's being supported in the community. One of the basic criteria that those of us who work in this area and will need is support from the mayor's office. We'll need to be able to have access to law enforcement. We'll need to be able to have access to uh, property managers and the business community. So my question is, when we do run into those barriers, will we have your support and assistance uh, in setting down and having conversations or forums with those persons in our community who will help to be key uh, in the success of helping not just our young men, but our women and our families who are returning to our communities and want to be vibrant members of this community. Let me start out with saying that in a number of areas, we have got longstanding criteria that we have used, and they've served us well up until now in, in regards to making certain kinds of economic decisions, whether it's allocation of resources or it's in contracting. And it's very clear that we've got to be more nimble and we've got to change how we do those things. And just two very different examples. One goes back to the exact sciences TIF, which really doesn't meet by 100% our standards for doing TIFs. We have to re-examine that. And then the other is how we do our standard contracting for services. If you look at the process in contracting for services and, and the requirements that we've got, from inception through design of the RFP in terms of the bidding process and so on, we're taking up to nine months. We're not only taking up to nine months, but we've also then got certain legal requirements in terms of who qualifies that excludes a lot of the people uh, who can provide those services because of everything from absence of insurance to a corporate structure that meets our standards. So we are now in the process in all these areas of re-examining how, how we write those contracts and those standards. The second thing, we started an initiative several years ago uh, to meet with the philanthropic community, those who give money. And we're trying to get to redirect how they make their decisions. And it's several different levels. The first level is moving away from the traditional notion of charitable giving to a notion of investment in human capacity. Those are very different uh, attitudes. And we've, we've seen several examples of change in recent years. We've seen it from particularly the Rennebaum and the Goodman Foundations in terms of their commitments 
in regards to summer youth employment and funding those programs, as well as the uh, Northside initiative that I mentioned earlier in terms of early childhood development. And I'm hoping that that is just the beginning, the beginning of a different attitude about what we do with, with those dollars that are eligible through nonprofits. Taking it to a next step, again going back to some of the problems we have as a city where we're not terribly nimble and we take six months, nine months, a year from the time a budget's adopted till we start, till we start the program, not finish it. The philanthropic community, if it were to embrace these kinds of initiatives, could be much quicker, much more rapid. They're going to have to do due diligence, but they can take a vote and they can act on it much, much, much more expeditiously than we can. So. Okay. Join me in thanking Natalie Erdman and Mayor Sagwin for this session of the program.